Welcome to Movement is My Constant. In this podcast, I invite movement researchers to share their embodied knowledge through open conversations as inspiration for organizations and leaders to design the future of work. For me as a teacher, I'm fascinated by the fact that people can change. My guest today embodies a young spirit by challenging our perception of age and the older body. In her movement practice, you see women from 50 to 80 years of age who wish to reconnect with themselves through fun, play and pleasure. With a natural curiosity on the sensations of the body since childhood, she invites us to experience the present body with all its flaws, marks and character. For more than 30 years coaching adults on stress management, change and choice, Fiona Winter is a true ambassador of accepting change with humor as we age. Fiona recently spoke on this topic of bringing embodied fun, play and pleasure for, for the older body during the Embodiment Conference and I was deeply inspired by her childhood influences, her adult life and the choices she made in her career. I also discovered we both love lavender smell and coconut mango ice cream. Today, we talk about fun, play and pleasure for all ages and why through embodying such qualities we are making an investment for our aging bodies. The importance of speaking about this today is how much of this knowledge can affect the future of the aging population and how today we can support positively our own families and communities by understanding that movement is an innate part of us. Fiona joins me today remotely from Nelson, UK, where she lives with her husband and her seven chickens, of which five are rescued. Welcome Fiona to Movement is My Constant. Thank you, Anna. Thank you for that introduction. When did you decide to rescue five chickens? <laughs> <laughs> our, our children, we have two sons, um, and they said to us a few years ago, you really need some animals to liven the place up, um, and unfortunately I'm allergic to cat and dog hair. So we decided that chickens would be a good idea, um, and we initially started buying a chicken coop um, off somebody secondhand, and it came with five chickens. And as we grew to love those five chickens, um, we decided that it would be even better to adopt some that were um, destined for slaughter, I guess you could say. So when um, a hen has reached the end of its laying life, according to the farmer, which is usually about 18 months, they, um, uh, in, in the UK certainly we have a hen rescue organization. And so we rescued, I think we had seven the first time, And we've done that several times. So we can give them another couple of years of, of good life. And uh, they still lay. Um, so we also get our eggs from them. And yeah, so we've done that for about eight years now. <laughs> so in eight years, always the seven chickens? Uh, no different chickens. Um, you know, sadly, if a, if a chicken has been a commercial layer, it does shorten its life somewhat. But they usually live to three or four years. So we give them a good couple of years after they've been rescued. And do they uh, wake you up early? Uh, when we had a cockerel, yes. <laughs> the cockerel used to wake us up. But no, our chickens are used to the fact that my husband and I don't get up at the same time they do. And we have a system that they can get outside and get to their feed and their water. And then they wait patiently for us to open up the larger space that they get to play in. <laughs> It's a really lovely story. Fiona, you are an embodied facilitator, associate teacher of embodied yoga posture, postures, Also a Nia Black Belt teacher, embodied aerial yoga teacher, gentle somatic yoga teacher, essential somatics teacher, plus numerous other fitness teaching qualifications, and certified in adult education and postgrad in health promotion. You usually say, I'm an older body and I work with older bodies. Fiona, when did you start working with older bodies and why? Well, as a teacher, I started in my early 20s. 
Mm. Um, when I first went into the fitness industry, I didn't see any reason why I couldn't introduce classes for older adults. You know, from a, a business point of view, they were available in the day when I could run classes. Mm. And I found if ever I set up a day class, they would be predominantly 50 plus probably at that time. Um, and whereas my evening classes were generally people of under 50. So initially, um, it might have just been the obvious business thing to do, to embrace everybody that came. And I think that is my nature, is to embrace everybody rather than sectionalize people into groupings. But I was thinking about this the other day, and really my first interaction with older adults and dance came from being a young child when, with my brother, we would go and entertain in old people's homes. Um, residential homes, day centers, or maybe somebody's golden anniversary party. And my brother and I would go along and do an act that contained maybe songs from music halls or popular songs of the day. So we would sing songs from the Mary Poppins film, which came out when we were children. And um, yeah, and I loved the fact that these people were being entertained, that they would sing along, that they would gain this enjoyment. So. It was no surprise to me, um, and it was really a no-brainer to then take that to older people when I started teaching. However, at that time, at 22, 24, I thought 50-plus was old, and that I should treat them quite gently. And it only took a few classes for me to realize that actually they were much more capable than I was thinking. Um, and so from that day on, I've continued to always teach um, older age groups alongside my mainstream classes. But also I think I noticed through my career that generally the age group I attract is probably about 10 years older than I am at the time. So in my 20s, my usual classes were 30-year-olds and 40s, 50-year-olds, etc., etc. You're just one step ahead, basically. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting to see how your own perception of age uh, led you to define your career and yeah the idea you had oh these people are old that curiosity led you to then continue yeah and actually uh, both my grandmother on my uh, father's side and my grandfather on my mother's side were both real characters um, who lived you know well into their 80s as active members of their community um, you know my grandfather was still tinkering with cars he'd been a car mechanic and ran a garage so I had these two role models who I just perceived as characters, not as old people. They were informative, they were interesting, they were funny, um, they were interested in what I was doing. So they didn't come with a perception of some old person who was sat not doing very much or not capable of doing much. So I'm, I'm really glad I had those role models. That's probably where you're getting your inspiration for the character. That's right. And then when I meet older people, I, I'm interested to see what their character is. Mm -hmm. Who are they underneath the skin? Um, you know, what's, what are they interested in? What can they bring out? So my very early classes that I had, I, I can still remember those characters back from the early 80s that were in my classes. Um, but, you know, to someone else, they were an old lady. And how has that changed? from your early 20s to, you know, throughout your career, that idea of character, has it became more refined? Yeah, I think the idea of character is, is still there. What I've learned through my own experience is the experience of living in an older body. Um, you know, particularly for women, we go through hormonal changes, which on the surface people um, see as, you know, hot flushes, the end of your periods, all of those classic things. But actually, there's a whole thing that goes on in the psyche as well. Um, and, you know, there's other things like, you know, stiffness in the ankles. Who knew? But that is one of the things of menopause. And when it happened to me, of course, I could then recognize that that might be the case that other people are finding that and not seeing it as that they're menopausal. Um, you know, I can remember going to my doctor and, and talking about some aspects of my physicality and him saying, well, of course, you are getting older. And, you know, what in fact was a symptom of the menopause was just dismissed as, well, you're an older woman, what do you expect? So my own experience, of course, gives me, um, you know, way more ability to understand personally what's happening um, to people. And also to go through experiences such as, you know, having elderly parents myself. You know, many women at 50 and 60 have elderly parents in their 
70s and 80s, and I've now had that experience. I've had that experience of my children leaving home and becoming adults. So that gives me a, a personally a deeper experience of what other women of my age and older are going through. But I still see them as characters. <laughs> still twinkles in our eyes. I know who's going to come up with the naughty joke. <laughs> yes, I, I have experienced your classes and they're so much fun. I love that community aspect as well. Everybody feels uh, extremely welcomed. I also felt welcomed into a very familiar group, actually. Um, and it's good to see. It's a very good energy. Mm. And interesting for me how that has developed actually through Zoom, um, through having this space and time to maybe talk a little bit more at the beginning of the class as a group, and at the end has developed this whole camaraderie. And I think some of them feel it's, it's like their personal secret club And then when, you know, when you yourself, when you came in, it was like, oh, Anna's here. She's going to get to share in it. And it's like, come on in. <laughs> this is what we, this is how we have fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it is a lot of fun, actually. <laughs> it really is. Going back to the aging body, what do you see in an aging body that is appealing? And what are you looking to explore? We've talked about character. For me, as a teacher, I'm fascinated by the fact that people can change they can become aware of something that's going on in their body whether that's uh, physically something that's going on um, you know for instance they're getting stiffer their joints are getting stiffer for whatever reason and some people will choose to then not do as much so they might turn up at my class not having moved and actually all they need is a little bit more movement um, you know, my joints might not be as supple as a 20-year-old, but there's no reason for them to completely stiffen up, you know, unless there's a medical reason. But if I don't do anything, they will stiffen up. So there's that challenge of being able to point them to the fact that they're, how they are physically could be changed and watch them arrive at that as a, an opportunity and a choice for themselves. But then there's also the mental aspect. Um, they might come to class and say, I was never good at PE, I could never dance. PE, by the way, is physical education for those people who are not in the UK, so a, a, a sports class in school. Um, or they might say, I'm not coordinated, I, I'll, or I'll be really clumsy in class. So there's this mental perception of what they might be like in class. So you know, that's kind of a bit of a challenge for me. How, as a teacher, can I make this simple, engaging, and fun so that without them even thinking about it, they've grasped the movement that we're doing, they're thoroughly enjoying themselves. So yes, there's a challenge for me as a teacher, and then that feeling that, wow, somebody's actually managing through their awareness and through their choice to make changes in their life. You know, so for instance, I had um, a lady who came to me who was supposed to be having a knee replacement within the next year. And she had a lot of pain in her knee joints. It was a class where I offered it as a seated class, but we stood up where we could. And within six months, her pain had reduced so much because she was now moving the leg and mobile. She still wasn't doing a lot of standing up, but she could do that. That in discussion with her doctor, she chose not to have the operation because the pain had been the biggest issue for her. And with that reduction of pain and that increase in mobility, she decided that she didn't want to go through the operation at that point. Now, that's a major thing to change. You know, that, that's something I can really see. But also, there's the change in attitude as well. So somebody who maybe is at the beck and call of their family, um, you know, they're running around being granny, being daughter-in-law, doing the babysitting, doing bits of shopping, picking the children up from school. And you know, sometimes they want to say no and actually do what they want to do. And to see that person change through the movements that we do in class to being able to create better boundaries, have a stronger, clearer voice, to let their body support what it is they want to say, and then to have them come back the next week and tell me, you know, I was really thinking of our martial arts move and how we stand and how we connect to the ground. So, you know, when my daughter asked me to babysit this week, I said, no, I can't. I'm doing something else that day. And, you know, that's a, a huge success to be able to change, help somebody change that through movement. 
Um, so yeah, there, those are some of the things I see. And as you saw, there's the camaraderie. So whether that's in a normal class, if somebody who's just moved to the area, um, I've had that recently, they were out for a walk in the park, they met someone else, they were told about my class. And then suddenly they've got a group of people who they might have gone for coffee with after class or we might have a Christmas celebration together. Um, I'll have to do it a little bit differently this year. <laughs> I think we'll have to have a Christmas coffee after one class and all we'll eat our cake and our mince pies um, together on screen. But yeah, that type of thing happens and that's, um, that's just organic. You know, I'm not setting that up necessarily. It's, it's the group of people. And the biggest thing I hear is this is somewhere where I can be myself. I am not somebody's wife, daughter, uh, mother, grandmother, or you know the person who used to work at the bank. I can just be me. And as I notice as people get older, they can become very stuck in one version of themselves, and that might be their choice, or it might be the circumstances that surround them. So I have someone in class at the moment who was um, head of a department in a local health board. Very responsible job, a very important job. Um, they needed a lot of gravitas, um, a lot of authority when they spoke. But she can come to class and shimmy and have fun and be playful and be silly. And that's not something she would have done in her nine-to-five role. But it's an aspect of her. So in class, there's that opportunity to shed other people's perceptions or even your own perception of who you are and, and through movement find another way of, of being embodied in your own body. Yeah, it's very interesting that you touched upon the fact that we tend to give roles to, especially to older people. Uh, if, we, if, if there's new babies in the family, oh, you're going to be a grandmother, that's a staple. And then we forget that there's actually uh, more things to that person. We, we completely forget to understand who they are, who they were, who they want to be. Yeah, it's, and it's a very easy trap to fall into. Um, so when my sons come round, you know, I find myself bustling around in the kitchen, making the dinner, almost by default, because both of them are wonderful cooks and both of them are more than willing to help me. So it's very easy to step into that role. Um, and sometimes I have to remind them that I'm still... Um, technically able you know they're 28 and 32 and I have to tell them yes I've just done a podcast I've just been on a an embodiment worldwide conference and I set up my own slideshow and did my own sound so I have to remind them because they have that perception of me as their mother and as an older person I think it was highlighted to me um, really clearly uh, by somebody who was on a course with me when I was training to be an embodied yoga principal's teacher and they were in their 30s and we were all training together and they came up to me halfway through the course and said wow I'm amazed at what you can do and I looked at them and thought well really because you know, I'm not the most flexible of person my balance isn't the best um, I'm not a yogi and they said yes but my mum couldn't do it and she's the same age as you so I do think there's that lumping together sometimes um, you know, so for anybody who comes along to my online classes, one of the people you might see who is actually 82 is my own dance teacher who still moves amazingly and in fact still runs her own tap dancing class as well. So she has a um, very creative brain still, a very able and nimble body. And you know what I see is somebody who's danced all her life, who's been creative all her life. I do think that's important too. Um, and she's curious. So curiosity is another thing, you know, what can I do? And I think, again, that fits in with older people. We get told what we can't do, or we have a perception of what we can't do, or we shouldn't do it. You know, if you're old, is it right to be skipping down the road and giggling arm in arm with your friend? Well, if you're my friend, you're going to have to get used to that, because if that's what I want to do, that's what I'm going to do. But there can be that perception of what will other people think. Or they'll think I'm trying to be a youngster. I, sh I shouldn't do that if I'm older. Um, and sadly, it goes right the way through life. So, you know, if I go to a supermarket, I might be offered, do you want help with your packing? Well, 
as, a, as an instructor of older people, I know that lifting things and moving is actually something our bodies need to do. And I need to keep doing that. I need to be lifting my bags in and out the car. It's part of my continuing strength training. Um, when I needed help was probably when I was a young mum with two toddlers. That's when I needed someone to help me pack my bags. Um, yeah, so there is this perception, and I've heard it from class members as well. Um, I remember very poignantly, actually, somebody who'd recently been bereaved, and they decided they needed to get out of the house and start doing something new. And their fear was voiced to me as, I haven't told my son I'm doing this. He thinks I should be just be at home, and it's too soon for me to go out. And yet, the space that she had to be who she needed to be and the companionship of other people was exactly what she wanted. So sometimes it's this perception of younger members of the family, put your feet up, mum, you shouldn't be doing that at your age. Well, they won't be able to do it in another year if they carry on putting their feet up not doing it it's when we stop that then that's the worst thing to come back to movement actually the students that come to your class and they find this intimate space that has this sort of uh, there's recognition right because there's people of same age uh, because of the teacher is close to their age maybe yeah i mean i certainly don't exclude the under 50s from my class <laughs> it's absolutely lovely <laughs> to have any age there um yeah and I'm, I'm well aware. I mean, I've been self-employed for many, many years, so I'm aware that people will come if they think it's something that is what they want. So there are people who come to my class because they feel they just want to be more active. They want to be fit, fitter. They want to keep moving. And that's a great reason to come. I think they get a lot more than they bargain for. So to, to be honest, most people come because they want to move and stay fit. And then they find that actually it's not just a normal fitness class we work holistically so I'm engaging their mind I'm engaging their emotions I'm developing mindful movement where they're aware and then through this they become become more aware of goodness I didn't realize how much I wanted to punch and block and chop and push in class or the reverse of that I didn't realize how tense I was how tight I was and how difficult I would find it to flow and to glide and to float. So it offers this expansion way beyond what most people think they've actually come to a class for. When you were a child, uh, you were truly connected to who you are today, like the senses of the body, the way you felt your body, the way you were curious, and also the people around you who influenced you. Can you share a little bit of that story? I'm totally lucky to have had you know, wonderful childhood with parents who were very supportive of what I did. And I'm, you know, becoming as an adult much more aware that that is not everybody's childhood experience. So my mother was very keen for me to dance because as a child, she'd grown up in the Second World War. Our money was tight and her dancing classes were stopped. And she was a beautiful dancer. I'm, I'm absolutely certain from what I saw of her as, a, as an adult. Um, and so she wanted me to have that opportunity and she searched for a teacher who could give me some fun in class, but also give me good technique. And we were so lucky to find a teacher who not only taught ballet, classical ballet, uh, at a very high standard, but also taught modern dance, tap dancing, um, and had actually been a professional dancer herself. And she really saw in me a child that wasn't necessarily the greatest technically, although I did go on and do major ballet exams it was it was hard work for me my body didn't have a natural dancer's turnout I didn't do the splits naturally I didn't have the highest kicks but what I did have was innate ability to share how much I was enjoying the dance with other people and so my dancing teacher would put on shows um, and again maybe that's where I learned to appreciate an older audience because we would often do them in old people's homes in hospitals etc and I was always shorter than the other girls of my age. I mean, I'm still only four foot ten, so probably about the height of an average 12-year-old. Um, and so she couldn't put me in a lineup with the other 14-year-olds, for instance, uh, because I would just look too short. Uh, but I love to perform, so she would often give me the solos to do. So she encouraged me to share my joy with other people and it was something that I was able to do so people in the audience could feel that 
So massively thankful for her. Thankful to my parents for um, you know, putting the money aside to take me dancing. My father would always ferry me to various dance classes. And then when at about 11, I said I want to go to drama school and I want to go to theater, I want to be an actress and a dancer, they had a little bit of a dilemma. I don't think they were willing to send me to um, drama uh, at stage school at that age. And, and maybe they couldn't actually afford to do that. So my father said, well, if you, if you pass your exams and get into the grammar school, um, you know, you really need to do that. That's your education. If you don't pass, we'll consider it. And, of course, they had a good idea I would pass. So I went to grammar school. But they still encouraged me to do theatre. And luckily, my dance teacher, by the time I was 16, she took students. And the idea was we would take our major dance exams, teaching exams, and be prepared to go and audition for theatre. And so that was a major influence to me, that she, she saw that I could do it. And so that, that's exactly what I did. She helped me get my first job as a dancer in the mid-70s in a theatre show, a summer season. Um, I went to the Welsh College of Music and Drama, where I was still too short to get all sorts of decent roles. Um, but I already had my union card for theatre, so I carried on into the theatre um, and did my first show in Wales in 1976. So that was my early influence to perform. And then as I was performing, I used to get struck by the fact that the audience were all sat down. They couldn't feel for themselves what I was feeling. They, I could share it with them, and they could get some of it, but they, they couldn't get the joy out of dance. And I think when a you know, break in my career came, when um, it, the obvious thing in between jobs was to go and teach, and I knew I didn't want to teach children. I wanted to teach adults. So that was my first step into seeing that, oh, my goodness, these people want to dance. And suddenly there were people in my class who stopped their own dancing classes at the age of 14, 15, 10, or they'd never been able to go. And there they were as 20 and 30-year-olds in my class learning the latest MTV pop song dance routine, you know, Michael Jackson's Thriller or Beat It or something like that, that I would sit for hours on the screen and take the choreography and then recreate that in my dance class. And then suddenly they had that joy in their own body. Interesting route. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's very influenced by this positive and belief. Yeah, and I think I possibly had that as a child, being born with that, well, I can do it. Um, and, and certainly I was the little girl in the playground who made sure nobody overlooked me, even though I was shorter than everybody else. Yeah. So maybe that comes from that spirit too. <laughs> but it's good to be well supported. Yes. Eventually your career became a little bit uh, quite structured uh, because you were teaching. Yeah, that's right. When I first started teaching, I ran you know, one dance class a week, but the rest of my living I made from teaching what we would call here exercise to music classes. So there was still music involved, but it was very much a kind of regimented style of movement, very linear, moving forward and back, moving side to side, a little bit of up and down, but not the holistic 360-degree movement. So, you know, first of all, that meant that my spine got stiffer. If you're not rotating and bending and flexing your spine, then it, it's not going to move in the same way. So that was something I definitely noticed. And then because as a teacher I showed some natural skill, I was invited to become a teacher trainer with what was then the first big organization in the UK to do standardized training for exercise teachers. So along with that job becomes you know, the idea of assessing students and if you're going to assess if somebody's good enough to go out nationally and teach in this country, they have to meet criteria. So suddenly I had a tick box and I was making judgments. Can they do this? Can they do it well enough? Did they do it often enough? So in a way it narrowed down what I saw. I could see a teacher who was immensely creative, great fun, but she didn't tick the boxes. And I then couldn't um, give her a pass as a teacher. So the whole world that I was in, both physically in what I was doing and mentally in the way I was having to work, began to narrow me down. I didn't have enough time to create choreography. I was totally involved in the fitness world. 
worked for various organizations that were big players in their field. So, you know, I was riding that wave and being a pioneer in that way. So I started creating courses and writing manuals. And that side of my brain is very well developed anyway. Um, I don't know if it's my star sign, I'm a Virgo, but I have a very logical brain anyway. It doesn't need much encouragement. But of course, what I lost was the creative, the curious, the fascinated, the childlike, this sort of part of myself that played and had no structure. And what my life was emphasizing was structure, rigidity, rules, deadlines, precision. Um, so from an embodiment point of perspective, um, I didn't have a range. I wasn't living in a range. I was living in one way. And, you know, if, you, if I look at my children then, my children would have rules, there was deadlines, there was, you know, parameters with what they can do, which, you know, is great parenting in one sense, but you know, where's the play and where's the fun? Um, so that had a, a real knock-on emotionally for me too. I noticed that I didn't get um, any highs or lows anymore. I didn't get overexcited about something. I didn't get over angry about anything. And to me, that's actually not living my full being. That's a bit of a shadow of myself. And I spotted it and I didn't like it. And how it came out in me emotionally was feeling depressed, um, not enjoying my life, um, not having much fun really. And it was finding Nia, the Nia technique as a movement form that opened my eyes in one class to what I had been missing. My body recognized it. I went to a fitness convention um, in the Midlands in the UK. Didn't know what classes I was going into. And because I was coming from a teacher organization, I had a free pass. I could go anywhere. It didn't matter if I'd booked. And I read a description of a class and thought, oh, I'll give it a go, but really quite half-heartedly. And I walked in and found they were all sat in a circle for the introduction, which is unusual. You know, fitness class was normally facing the teacher, ready to be told what to do. And suddenly this person was talking about choice, listening to your own body, doing things your way. It's like, hmm, this is intriguing. And then her music playlist was just amazing songs that I would have loved to have used in my fitness classes but wouldn't have fitted, I suddenly found my body um, doing more intense moves than I would normally do. I wanted to move in a bigger way. I wanted to expand. I wanted to jump. I wanted to leap. I wanted to be quiet and soft. And at the end of the class, I was so exhilarated. I was like, how, do, how do I find out more? I want to teach this. Um, so I went to a lecture that she was doing which was really about awareness and mindful movement. And at the end, I said, I, you know, I want to sign up. And at the time, there were only courses available in America. So I came home from that training, that weekend um, convention, um, making up the conversation I was going to have with my husband so that I could get my hands on a little bit of money we had in our joint account and go to America with it. <laughs> And what was so fascinating was he really didn't need much persuading because he could see what a difference it had made to me in my personality and in my um, relationship with him and how I was with the children, that he was like, yeah, okay, <laughs> you can go. So long before the near technique came to the UK, in fact, it was 1980, I went over to um, Houston and did a white belt training with Helen Terry, who is still a near trainer today. And carried on, in fact, going back to the States for my training. But at the same time, I was setting up courses in the UK for trainers to teach. So we then began to grow um, teachers in the UK. But I, all my trainings happened in the States because they hadn't yet occurred in the UK. Um, yeah, so that was my introduction. And, and my, my body became alive. It's, it's beautiful, really. It's just an amazing story uh, because I recognize it and I think a lot of people will too. That moment that you really lose contact with yourself and it, it's exactly what you say, that shadow or the ghost as I call it. Yes. You become a ghost uh, yeah. and it's scary. Yeah. And just a simple thing that your body knows. So I guess it's your. it was your initial contact with embodiment. and. Yes, it was. I didn't know that word at the time, and I hadn't even heard the word somatic at the time, but it was definitely a somatic experience, and 
um, you know, what I got from it was, wow, I have this range of embodiments. You know, so as a parent, I always described, you know, in Nia we have nine different movement forms. Three of them are dance, three of them are healing arts, and three are martial arts. And each one of them has a quality of movement. So if I said taekwondo to you, you'd probably think of sharp, definite moves. And in Nia that translates to our kicks, blocks, and punches. And if I said um, tai chi, you'd probably think of softness and slower moves. Very different quality. Jazz dance, it's like showing off. It's look at me, isolated moves. So if I translate that into my parenting style, my parenting style was either taekwondo, this is how we're doing it, let's get it done, do it now, <laughs> or jazz, let's have a whole lot of fun <laughs> and go crazy. But there wasn't really anything in between. So I noticed, and perhaps because I was already a teacher when I first did my near training, so I had the teaching skills, so I could focus on what were the other things that my training was bringing me. So I thought, what if I approach my parenting with an Aikido approach, which is win-win? So when we have a discussion about things, we negotiate as a parent and as a child, you know, what time are you going to go to bed? It's not Taekwondo. This is the time. This is it. Definite. It's not, I'll go whenever you like, which should be like jazz. But it's a negotiation. You know, have you got school tomorrow? Have you done everything you need to do? Um, and so I actually brought the qualities of the different movement forms from Nia into my whole being. And I always said, you know, as much as learning about the movement form, I learned how to dance through my life with the training with Nia. Then I went on to find um, somatics, I looked at Hannah somatics and also gentle somatic yoga. Um, I also worked with aerial yoga teachers who were trained somatic teachers as well. So, you know, how to work with fabrics in a somatic way. And then found Mark Walsh and the Embodied Facilitator course and Embodied Yoga Principles, which really pulled everything together that I was experiencing but my, my body had been working in an embodied way definitely for, you know, the, this previous 20 years. I'd just gone 40 when I found Nia, and my 40th birthday experience was not good. I felt old, to be honest. I felt old, and I felt, you know, like you would say, the ghost of myself. Where had I disappeared to? And now I'm 62, and I certainly don't feel like that. No, so and I, you don't look like that. <laughs> thank you. I mean, that's an investment I made in myself. You know, it was investment of money to go and train, and then my time and my energy to, what can I do with this? How can I put this into my life? It's not just about when I go and teach. You know, I do see people do that. They teach something, and they don't live it afterwards. And I, I live what my teachings have been. Yeah, it's, it's really the qualities of embodiment. It's really what it means. You put your body there in that sort of, uh, that the complete, it's a wholesome experience. You go through life with the body, not with just your mind. Or yes. And learning to listen to what your body says to you. And, you know, that takes me back a bit to my older participants. Um, you know, as older people, we're often told what to do. You know, it can be, as I said before, the... The child who says to the parents, you're too old to do that, don't do that. It's dangerous at your age. But it could also be the medical profession. You know, we can learn to rely on the medical profession for telling us what's going on in our body. Um, rather than actually listening to it and having a sense of how does that feel for us? Does that feel not quite right for us? Um, so that's something that I really encourage the older adults through awareness to do. Is, is notice what is happening in their body and take ownership and take charge of it. It is very important to make this investment, especially as we grow older. Also, when you say that movement is for everybody, everybody should move and, and can move actually, why what, or what limiting beliefs exist that actually say otherwise? I think one of the things is a perception of what we did do in our earlier life. So I definitely don't have as much energy as my 20-year-old body. That, that's for sure. You know, my muscles, bones, and joints have been existing in this life for a lot longer. <laughs> and there are certain bits that are feeling a little bit worn. You know, that's a given. But that doesn't mean I can't move. 
Now, for some people, that's quite hard to swallow that they can't do what they used to do. And I actually see this a lot in class where somebody's had to miss a few months of class, maybe because of an illness, and then they don't come back. And I will, I'll ring them, I'll call them or email them, and they'll say, oh, I was worried I couldn't do what I did before in class, and I wouldn't keep up. Now, what that person's forgotten is probably when they very first came to me, they were way less physical and way less able that, you know, than, than they are currently. And it's okay to come back and not do what you did last week. It's okay to turn up one morning in the week and feel tired and another morning in the week and feel fine. So there is this perception. And, you know, only today I've had somebody who hasn't been to class. I queried her, you know, what was happening. And she said that the pain she was having in her hips and her knees had been diagnosed as arthritis. My immediate response was, well, you need to come back to class then because you need to keep those joints moving. And yet I could sense that her perception was, it's painful and I won't be able to do it. So yes, it might be painful if you did it how you did it six months ago or how you were trying to do it. How about listening to the pain? How about avoiding a movement that's painful? Um, you know, and, and in that aspect, I certainly I see with painful joints, people then stiffen up in a larger area around the joint. They avoid the pain, so they don't do the movement, but then they don't do any movement. And then the whole area becomes stiff. Um, and I've seen that time and time again. So there is a reluctance to admit that they might not be quite as they were before. Um, that does stop people for sure. There's also this idea of failure. Yes. We are constantly uh, reminded that because we cannot, we are not able to do something anymore, or then we have failed instead of perhaps bringing a curious mind, right? Yeah. And that also comes if they haven't ever danced before. All right. I, or I went to class once and the teacher told me I'd never make a dancer, so I left. There's, there are those experiences, or in, in sports in school, that they haven't been the agile child. So yes, that's a mentality that comes. And so as a teacher, I need to think, how can I make sure that everybody is successful? And so that for me is inclusion. Make sure there's a version of everything that we do that's accessible to somebody in a chair, to somebody who's got a, a sore knee, to somebody who can't move their shoulder, um, or maybe somebody who's in a wheelchair. So inclusion is really important. And then what could I offer that everybody can do? And that's our starting point. I go to too many classes where, you know, the teacher does this amazing thing and then says, let's have a go. And then, oh, you can't do that. Well, hang on a minute. I'll give you something easier. Well, do we really want to be told that as an adult? Why not give us something that we can all do? And then there's a choice. I'm going to layer on something as a choice. How about you give this a go? So it's also my languaging. How about give it a go. Would you like to? I'll invite you to. And then those things are just an, op an option rather than, oh, this is the clever version. This is the hard version. This is the smart version. And if you have to do the easy version, carry on. So my offering and teaching of it. And then there's the whole idea of, great, you opted out of that. Well done. I can see you're listening to the body and making everything smaller. So I'm actually encouraging behavior in class, which is about people listening to their body and only doing what they can, rather than encouraging the per person who keeps going. <laughs> so we've talked uh, mostly about, yes, the aging body, the roles, so we can change our perception of roles, we can change uh, even our skills. We probably, people are changing after uh, going to your classes, uh, no matter the age. Um, the shared meaning of community. I've always seen women in your class. Why not more men? And yeah, what, what perceptions do we have about aging men? Well, I've definitely had men in my class before now, but they tend to be one or two. And I think it's their perception, to be absolutely honest, of the fact that they see a lot of women. So maybe they think it's a woman-only space or that they won't be welcomed. And also the perception of, what if I'm no good? And this whole group of women actually see that. So frequently when I get men, they often will come as a couple. 
you know, they've made the choice to come as partners to class. And so that can be incredibly supportive. And there's absolutely no reason why a man can't come to class. If I have a group of women, I might use imagery that is um, inclusive to a group of women. Now, that doesn't mean to say I'll use that if there's a man in the class. And just as women might be increasing their range in certain movement qualities that they don't normally do, so could a man. So a man who might present as very rigid in their body um, and very definite and very clear, but without any softness in their body, they might then start to experience that in a class. Now, if you've ever watched a man hold a baby, you know, a grandfather hold a grandchild, there is a softening that happens. There's a softening that happens in their face. And there's a natural sort of almost curving in and softening to a child. Um, you know, why not learn how to do that through choice in a class? Why not learn how to let go and just be free and to play? And there are w ways that men do that. It's, it's very often in a jokey sort of way as a group of lads and joshing around. And there still might be an edge to that. But I'm certainly happy to offer that to, to men in class. And within NIA, there are definitely more male teachers and certainly male teachers offering a, a, a male-only experience as well for people to try. In the embodiment uh, world or mindfulness world or somatics, you see, you can see more male teachers, but then participants are more women than men. So... <laughs> well, that's an interesting topic to get me started on. Thanks. Thankfully, a lot of the people I know will encourage people, whatever their gender, but certainly within the fitness world that I was involved in, you know, the male presenter was seen as the person who would attract the female audience. So, you know, there's, there's certainly a marketing um, aspect to that. Um, I do think oh, there's so many things that come into play, isn't there? Um, you know, as a, as a mother of two children, I had to spend a lot of my time parenting, and my husband did too. But just being a parent, you know, whether you're doing that on your own or as a couple, takes time away for your business. So I do think for females, there's you know, less opportunity to maybe drive themselves within an industry. So if the industry is also picking you know, male role models to, for their marketing, um, and less females are able to give their attention to that, then we're going to see more male role models for sure. Um, I think in terms of participation in the embodiment world, I see way more women switched on to embodiment, switched on earlier. And, you know, thank you guys, those of you who are there, being switched on, doing the work, thank you. And what great models they are for other men to get involved. Um, but I do see more women tapping into their inner self and what they're sensing and feeling inside them than men. During your presentation, you, uh, or actually I asked about how could I invite my grandmother to move? And to which you uh, replied, well, let her move you uh, through her music, through her favorite uh, songs and trigger her through her own uh, memories as a teenager, for instance. So this leads me to the next question is, um, what would you like to see more of in, you know, between young and old, uh, like these invitations? Well, definitely having a range of age groups to, to work with has shown me how much small children, younger children, can really benefit for working with, with older adults. And I know certainly in my local area, I work a lot with um, arts development teams, and they're doing many projects that are cross-generational. Um, because if a child can understand more about an older adult, you know, for instance, you know, what does dementia mean in an older adult? They might be experiencing grandparents or great-grandparents with dementia. So there are definitely projects where um, music and movement is going into things like residential homes, uh, bringing a group of children. I myself used to do quite a lot of work with nine and ten-year-olds, and we would link up with adults with learning difficulties. So breaking those taboos of you know, what somebody was like with a learning difficulty um, and working with a child of nine or ten and had some amazing experiences there. So I think cross-generational work is really important. But also it's, it's about respect. 
It's about respect for what somebody's achieved throughout their life um, and the effort that that might have taken them and the cost to them as well, you know, to a point where they are in the 70s, 80s and 90s. So I think there's more respect needs to come in and, and therefore people to be listened to and heard. So you know, I, I didn't actually realize it was you that had asked that question, but it was a wonderful one. And yeah, you know, rather than you going to tell your granny and instruct her, it's what could she inform you? So it's also then she has a place, she has a value. And um, you're also not making assumptions then. You're not able to because she's going to show you and tell you. And music is a great catalyst for that. It can take people back to their teenage years, their early 20s. But you know, even if we don't use music um, that's relevant to that, uh, part of someone's life you know I don't necessarily take that music into my classes I just take music that I think makes people want to move and that might be somebody who's in a wheelchair who has very little use of their body might just nod a head or tap a hand they're still getting that sense of the movement and music within their body lastly I have two fill in the blank questions so just quick answers um, <laughs> Question one. A wrong idea people usually have over age is? That we can't do it anymore. <laughs> and the next one is, movement is your constant because? Keeps me alive and it nourishes me. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Fiona. <laughs> it was a, a really big pleasure having you here. You can find Fiona in her website, fionawinter.com, and in her Facebook account under the same name, Fiona Winter. She's currently teaching her dance classes online and as well as coaching. Um, yes. So is there anything you'd like to add here? Any other references, projects, things coming up? We're doing a collaboration probably either side of Christmas with another wonderful teacher, uh, Karine Van Maan. Um, who's also an embodied yoga principles teacher and embodied facilitator. And we'll be looking at nourishment and rest and pleasure. <laughs> so yes, look out for things coming up. Um, I also have a DVD actually of my seated classes. So if you have somebody in your life who really needs to move from a chair, that's available. And also um, one of the loveliest routines that I've created called Grace which is a beautiful, soft, mindful, simple routine that you can do at home. So they're available if you can't get to Zoom classes as well. Thank you so much, Fiona. Thank you. <laughs> and it's lovely to have met you and, and connected with you and to dance with you too. I will be back to your classes.